Welcome to Uncommons. I'm Nate Erskine-Smith, and on this episode, we're focused on ending chronic homelessness. Our federal government has committed to this goal by 2030, and we've increased funding over the last five years towards this goal, including most recently a $1 billion rapid housing initiative. That program initially targeted creating up to 3,000 new affordable homes for vulnerable Canadians, and on the most recent numbers, it looks like it will support the construction of more than 4,700 permanent affordable units for Canadian families, including 1,800 units for Indigenous people. We've also helped to fund city plans here in Toronto, including for modular housing, and there's actually a site in my riding of Beaches East York that is currently the subject of some local debate, which I'll get into with my guests. I'm joined by two different guests back-to-back for this episode, so a little bit different than usual. First by Adam Vaughn, my Liberal colleague here in Toronto for the riding of Spadina, Fort York. He served as City Councillor in Toronto previously for many years. His political career at different levels has been motivated by a passionate concern for housing policy, and he also happens to be the Parliamentary Secretary with carriage of the housing file. Then, Anne Babcock joins me to bring the perspective of an established supportive housing provider here in our East End. She's the president and CEO at Wood Green Community Services, where she actually started in the Adult Services and Volunteer Department in 1978. She's brought her expertise to local initiatives with the city and United Way in the past, and has also led international projects focused on capacity building and housing policy. She also happens to be a constituent, so many reasons to have her join. I'm hopeful we'll see additional funding towards ending chronic homelessness in the coming budget, and I do hope that Adam and Anne continue to inform the way governments at all levels work together on this issue going forward. Adam, thanks so much for joining me. Great to be here. We My have... first podcast ever. <laughs> Actually, first Actually, podcast ever. Yeah, I'm, I'm an old guy. I used to do radio. <laughs> you remember that thing? It's, oh, wow. it's on the side of your bed. You could flip it on, but I had your full attention when I was on radio. Not now, well, welcome to your now, first now podcast. Now I'm competing. <laughs> So I specifically asked you to join to speak about housing because I know you care a lot about the issue and it's a really serious issue that we need to address on a number of different fronts and we'll get to that. But in my community right now, we have a modular housing project and we've received a lot of supportive correspondence and I'm certainly supportive of the city's modular housing initiative and any chronic homelessness in the city and across the country. But we've also received a lot of concerns about that particular project and there is a strong we want to end homelessness too, but this is not the right location right. argument that we're receiving. Now that's a city question to a large degree in terms of site selection, but we're in the game as a partner to end chronic homelessness. And this is one of the ways of doing it. How would you answer constituents? And what are your thoughts on the modular housing initiative from the city and, and site-specific sure. conversation? So let's deal with the first issue first. How do you answer the question, why here? Um, because it comes up at virtually any development project, regardless of who's living there, people will will measure it against uh, their expectations for the community and ask why the change. The reality is this, is homelessness comes from every corner of this country, every neighborhood of our city, any street can produce a family that's or an individual who's suddenly going to find themselves in need of shelter because they, they've lost their the security of their, their current house. So if we start from the premise that homeless people come from every part of the country, then we have to also assume that every part of the country has a role to play in solving homelessness. And you can't say you know, you may have grown up in East York, you may have grown up on that street, you may have played your your minor baseball on that playing ground, but if you're homeless, 
all of a sudden you have to move to downtown Toronto or to suburban Sudbury or to Moose Jaw to, to get your housing needs met. That's just not fair. It's not fair to the individual. It's not, it's not responsible to the source of homelessness, but it's also cutting homeless people off from communities where they where they live. Now, sometimes in the homeless sector, you need to move people away from high concentrations of people with complex needs because if you are schizophrenic and you're struggling with mental health issues, and you're surrounded by people who are doing crystal meth or crack or something else, the combination of high-needs people and the hyper-concentration of high-needs people can sometimes create complexities that are so intertwined and so overlaid with each other that you can't actually heal the person and get them to a position where they're a contributing member of the community again. So we have to do two things when we fight homelessness. We have to serve people where they are, and sometimes we have to serve people where they're best going to find the health supports they need to live a higher quality of life and become less of a risk to everybody, including themselves in the community. Communities have a right to sort of manage their affairs. And if you believe in local democracy, you believe in the ability to manage the problems, but you can't make your neighborhood exclusive to the problems. And so this particular site has the capacity to house people quickly with appropriate services, with government support, and it's time for this corner of East York to do their share as other communities across this country have been doing theirs. And if everybody took a 50-unit facility in their neighborhood, we'd wipe out homelessness tomorrow. There are two challenges that some constituents at least would put back. One is in relation to safety, and largely there are people who oppose on safety grounds, but generally there's a conversation around is this going to make our neighborhood less safe? And it's more of a concern, but expressed as a question because they want more information. And the studies that were put back from the Wellesley Institute, I think, and, and some others were to suggest that there wouldn't be increased safety concerns. But what gave me great comfort, Neighborhood Group is a local organization, Wood Green's another one. Neighborhood Group is actually actively involved already as an on-site, 24-7 on-site provider in the two existing modular housing projects that are up and running as of late last year, I think. And having that on-site service provider that is local and experienced and respected in the community, I think is a huge answer. We're not going to end chronic homelessness without without supportive housing. You, you don't do it just with low-cost housing. You also require supports. Poverty puts you on the street. It's a healthcare issue that keeps you on the street. And whether it's an addiction issue or a, or a mental health issue, there are two other drivers which are just as critical. One is brain injury, and the other one is, is developmental disabilities that haven't been diagnosed. And so those four indicators are, are the main drivers of what push people from homelessness into chronic homelessness. So about 82% of homeless people in Canada touch the system once and put themselves back on their feet and you never hear from them again, hopefully, and hopefully for them as well. But they're about 17 to 18% and it changes from city to city and it changes from province to province because of the way provinces, cities, and the federal government interact or don't interact in different jurisdictions. But on average across the country, about 18% of homeless people are there because of a health issue. It's like saying, I don't want someone who is got a brain injury to live in my neighborhood because they present a danger to my family. They may or they may not, but they may or may not have a brain injury and may or may not live in a homeless shelter. If your next door neighbor's 18-year-old kid has an unfortunate accident playing a sport or, or, or in the military, which is a real issue, they may come back to live in your community with a brain injury. And the trouble is, is that if you don't have the community health supports to deal with the brain injury, they may self-medicate. And when they self-medicate, they may end up with both an addiction issue and a mental health issue as the drugs, especially street drugs, do damage to people's neurological capacity. So there's no way of 
of, of eliminating schizophrenia based on the house you buy. The person next door can be a schizophrenic as, as easily as the homeless person down the street, as easily as the coworker in the cubicle next to you. The issue challenging all of us is how do we deal with those health issues, especially when they produce homelessness? And in that regard, you do need affordable housing. You do need supports in that housing, both for the individual and the community. And the challenge the city of Toronto has been having is not the safety of their residential dynamics inside the house. What really needs to happen here, and this is where I think the local councillor is critical, and it's also where our federal spending needs to show up, and it's also where the province needs to get past its, its prejudice around some of these issues, is that we've got to find a way to make Make sure that the person lives in a safe unit, but also contributes to community safety. And they can if you give them a chance. But if you simply say no and you push them out of your neighborhood, you haven't eliminated the problem in your neighborhood because anybody can get a mental health issue. Anyone can be diagnosed with a brain disorder. It's it's ludicrous to think you can zone social dysfunction out of a community. The real test is how does a community respond to that and what's the compassion level in the community and how do you fit that, that that dynamic into your community because I can guarantee you it's already there. And that's a legitimate conversation and that's a legitimate place to challenge governments to say, okay, we'll take the residential units, but show us the internal and external health impacts are going to be managed and let's enrich the program rather than chase it out of the neighborhood with pitchforks. You've brought back childhood memories in some ways in that response. I grew up in the East End in what they now call the Upper Beaches, but it wasn't called that when, when I was living there. And we would play road hockey and there was a rental housing, not, not very many units, I think two or three units in, in the, one of the homes down the street. And there was an individual with a, a mental health issue who would be out yelling at dogs and yelling at leaves. And we never felt at risk ourselves. I mean, at one point, I can remember one instance where we stopped playing road hockey because he was out yelling in the middle of the street and we were just, we're going to go inside. But this isn't unique. Stopping to... you from yelling at each other. <laughs> exactly, yeah, exactly. <laughs> but but not unique to homelessness per se, that these, these challenges exist across our communities and across our city. And it is about how we respond to them. One, the second concern, I mentioned two concerns. The second concern that I heard overwhelmingly at the first community consultation, and I'm just an observer to these things at the federal level as far as mm -hmm. it goes, but trying to support the city's overall initiative, I do think we need to be there not only as a funding partner, but as no, an active partner. Your social media on this was was brave. I mean, it wasn't about a conversation later and let's figure it out. It was, this is the right thing to do. Now let's do it the right way. Exactly. And it, that kind of leadership is rare on this file and, and you're to be commended for it. Well, I appreciate that. The, the, the local planning secondary concern is in relation to who lives here. Obviously, it's about ending homelessness. And these aren't transitional units. These are People are going to rent them and, and they're going to be tenants. And it was very clear from the city side that they're going to be subject to tenancy rules and, and everything else. But they're all currently planned to be single individuals. And we saw the breakdown, 50 some odd percent men and 42% or something women is the overall number of individuals that are experiencing homelessness currently. But there was a concern about single people versus families. And why couldn't there be a mixture of units within the 64 well, unit? You, you guys force people to sell their homes when they get divorced? I mean, it, look, at you, you can't zone people. You know, it's, it's, it's a human rights issue, right? You may build a single family home and one person may live it. You may build a single bedroom apartment and a family of five may live in it. I have no problem with 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 broadening the mix on on a particular project. No problem with broadening the mix in neighborhoods, but we are broadening the mix in the neighborhood by bringing in diversity of economic and, and uh, household composition. And and 
diverse neighborhoods do better than single-styled neighborhoods. We're not living in a suburb where we have all the same cookie-cutter home and all the same economic, socioeconomic profile and all the same sometimes even religious or linguistic or, or, or you know, cultural group. The reality is, is that we've chosen to live in a complex urban environment because we love the complexity. We like living next door to a bus driver and a lawyer. We like living next door to a family that's been here for two years, 10 years, and 10,000 years. Diversity is not just a question of cultural competency. It's also about the richness of the neighborhood. You know, there are a lot of families who can't afford to get their kids, say, baseball. I know there's a baseball field across the across the way here. Can't get into the swimming lessons. And part of the way we let low-income families get their kids to participate is the mom, dad, or the older sibling may be a coach, and you may cut the cut the family a break if you put some volunteer hours in. We'll cut the fees, and your younger brother can, or younger sister can play can play some sport or or can join the dance club or what have you. The challenge in this neighborhood is not yes or no to this project, it's how. And yeah, you're going to get a new mix of people that will deepen the diversity in your community. But when you take a look, when you walk through a homeless shelter and start talking to folks, you will be amazed at the resources that are also coming to your community. Homelessness is not some social defect. As I said, poverty puts you on the street. And we have programs to for income support and, and and rent subsidies and emergency bank, you know, rent banks and stuff to get you out of that situation and into stable, affordable, and secure housing as quickly as possible because prevention is still the best the best strategy here. But the reality is if you if you hit the streets and stay on the streets, you either arrive with medical conditions or you increase the complexity of your medical profile. And that's what locks you into a place where you can't navigate housing systems. You can't earn first and last month's rent because you can't hold a job because you're still struggling with some of the issues that you may have acquired on the street because our system is so bad at prevention right now. So we have a challenge in this country. We have a pool of homeless people, about 38,680. That's that's roughly the shelter capacity in the emergency housing count across the country. There are components of homelessness which are invisible, largely women and largely children because they touch the homeless sector, they lose their kids and so they hide, but also high-functioning people don't go into shelters and don't hit the streets because it's bloody dangerous. It's a rational thing to try and avoid the shelter system. Additionally, people who touch the shelter system hide from it because the shelter system is the worst way, the most expensive way, and I would argue the cruelest way to deal with with the social failing that we have and a governmental failing we have. So when we look at the homeless population, we have got to exit people from homelessness, but we can't make the situation worse while we try to make it better. And so we have to focus on prevention. We have to focus of, 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 of emptying the population and moving them to safe and secure housing, which this is part of that system. And when we move them to safe and secure housing, we have to figure out how to graduate them into self-sufficiency because that's where the highest quality of life lives. I expect this building to immediately house some pretty tough people to house. But I also expect over five to 10 years for the population to stable, for people to call it home, and for them to start to come out of some of the shadows of, of, of addiction or, or mental health or brain injury and to, to be the person cutting the grass and the baseball diamond so the kids get to play because they like baseball or the person who, who suddenly starts to uh, come to your local church sale and shows up uh, with, with baked treats. I mean, I expect that, that, that in 10 years' time, we're going to wonder what the argument was about. But the immediate decision is one that, that requires people in a very you know, stable, middle-class neighborhood to suddenly have to contemplate something which doesn't happen a lot in their lives, which is change. The people moving in have gone through unbelievable circumstances to arrive at where they've arrived at. But the reason they're moving in is that they're ready to be housed and they want to be housed. And if you house them, they will immediately start to do better on every single metric you want to test them on. That question of how to make it work 
if adding some mix to the building to add some something beyond bachelor apartments, obviously you're going to have the majority of the units be bachelors because the majority of people exiting the shelter system are single people just on the numbers. But if some mix meets the community consultation, to me that it's obviously a city conversation, but to me that would make sense. But it depends on the total overall project of the city. It depends on here are the various sites that we plan. Here are the various units we plan because here's how we're meeting the demographics that are exiting the shelter system. And it really is, we have to take a step back and say, what's the bigger plan here? And the bigger plan is ending homelessness. You say 38,000 shelter capacity across the country. Well, I read the Toronto numbers. It's 6,800 or so people every night in shelters. Over and above that, it looks like maybe 1,000 people out on the streets, not even in the shelter system. And so this is a a challenge that we all need to be part of addressing, as you say. 40% of the people who go to sleep in a, in a city-run shelter or an emergency housing setting, close to 40% are children. Let's not kid ourselves here. The, the two fastest growing demographics inside the homeless counts in Toronto are seniors and children. Not to say that we aren't growing the center, but we're growing in every direction in Toronto for a whole series of reasons that, that are quite frustrating. And in comparison to the Canadian cities, quite embarrassing, actually. Toronto has a lot of work to do here in comparison to even Hamilton, let alone London. You know, London, Ontario got rid of, uh, solved the, the problem on veterans' homelessness during the pandemic. You know, Edmonton had cut its homeless population in, almost in half by about 43% leading into the pandemic and just started to creep up because of the, the economic situation, not because their housing system isn't working properly. But the trouble with Toronto is that Toronto has this kind of, it, it's like the tyranny of the MBA. You know, we, we've all learned how to dismiss scientific socialism as a failed theory. We haven't quite figured out how to deal with scientific capitalism yet. And the way the city looks at it in a very problematic way is that it won't mix families with singles because the children will be put at risk. And so it makes a very middle class assessment that you can't have a homeless person next to a homeless family because the homeless family will get on their feet someday because they're not challenged in the same ways. I agree. I think I think this would be a stronger project, although it's a very small one, so it's hard to really mix it up. But I think that the that ultimately the way we've developed social housing, in particular co-op housing, with mixed of income levels, mixed of social experiences, and a dynamic sort of uh, array of household composition, what that does is it allows you to actually build a community in the house that's interdependent. So a family can find a babysitter, or or conversely, a young person may find a mentor, or 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 an older person has companionship, and you start to knit together a neighborhood in the house, and then the neighborhood house is knit into the neighborhood at large. The trouble is that Toronto has had this sort of managerial class running the shelter system. And in doing so, they've ended up with shelters of like 600, like Seton House, you know, which is often called Seton House. You can't over-concentrate homeless individuals in one location, all with the same demographic profile, because what it's like putting all your gas stations in the same neighborhood in one city. If there's an argument to be made about how to do this better, it may be, why don't you mix larger and smaller units, because I can guarantee you that when when a homeless individual starts to heal and, and starts to, to, to manage their mental health into, into, into a better space or, or reduce types of drugs or the types of supports they take to, to manage the other issues in their life, as individuals start to heal, they do what everybody else does. They couple up. And when people exactly. couple up, you get a kid. It's the same reason why one-bedroom apartments in City Place was such a stupid idea, is that when you build a neighborhood with 98% of the units as single units, you're going to have children in five years. 
And now what you end up with is a neighborhood that's effectively a vertical suburb for singles only. And, and families start to grow into these towers, but there's no schools, there's no community centers, there isn't a family doctor, kids don't have a park to play in. And there's a distortion of the organic wonder that cities are when you over-program and singularize the demographic. This is a small project and it's a modular housing project. So it can be plugged and played and taken apart and put back together, which is one of the, the pieces of magic around this, this new housing form. It's not as durable as a permanent house, but it has the flexibility of a typical Victorian row house that it can be a, a rooming house, a single family house, or, or, or a duplex all at the same time without ever changing the four outside walls. Modular housing works in that way. And you may see people coupling up and having kids and you can simply combine two units and knock down a wall and away you go. You've got the family units there. I hope the city has the foresight to allow these projects to grow with the community that's there. So you don't have to move if you start a family. You can start your family in a neighborhood full of, guess what? Other families. Right, and exactly. And you're across the street from a park and you're across the street school, from community center, a school park. And, and you're part of the community right. and growing into the community in a serious way. I think that's right. The, so the initial reaction build to- Build that flexibility in. Exactly. And the initial reaction a number of people had was, well, there's a school and there's a park and good take. Right. So I, (laughs) right. So I can appreciate the, the ask for more information to satisfy the concerns about my kids. But in the end, people who are struggling, getting on their feet and wanting to become part of a community in a more serious way, put down roots and build a family, they deserve to be close to parks and schools too. Yeah. And the other side of it is, is that they're also taxpayers. They paid for your school, they paid for your park and they paid for They're not homeless individuals. You know, 50% of the people in the shelter system have jobs. There was that story out of Ottawa during the pandemic of, of the people, the nurses in the long-term care facility who were living in a homeless shelter because they weren't being paid enough in the long-term care facility. They brought COVID to the long-term care facility from the shelter. Everyone said, well, well, looked at and sort of scratched their heads. And I said, you can't isolate these problems because these problems come from every corner of the city. Therefore, you've all got to pay attention to it. And just pretending that the long-term care facility was safe because a registered nurse was coming in, being paid half the regular rate, well, they got half the housing too. And with half the housing, you get half the financial and health security. And as a result of that, you put all the seniors at risk because you're not investing into homeless services. So as I said, housing is a very complex issue and you can and it radiates into every other social challenge. But at the heart of every social challenge, housing also provides a very critical solution. You mentioned Toronto's challenges. And one reason I felt compelled to be very public in my support for the city's modular housing initiative, one is... I remember speaking to John Tory and really emphasizing, if you're going to run again, if you're going to continue to be our mayor, you have to lean into the housing problem. And that means building more housing. And it, mean, it means overcoming nimbyism and spending some of your political capital to do just that. And having said that to John, I really felt compelled to stand up for John when he's taking these measures to really end chronic homelessness in our city and to build more housing as quickly as we reasonably can. And it's another reason I want to stand up in support of the Rapid Housing Initiative. This idea of putting a billion dollars on the table nationally, 20% of which is coming to the city of Toronto to deliver on not only modular housing, but other kinds of rapid housing to end chronic homelessness. We now have not only a commitment to have chronic homelessness by 2030, which was something we committed to in the last parliament, but we now have a commitment to end chronic homelessness across the country, which seems eminently achievable, putting these systems in place and the dollars on the table. For those who are less familiar, though, modular housing, you've explained a little bit, but what is rapid housing? What is this rapid housing initiative and how is it going to help us achieve the goal? Modular housing is a subset. The rapid housing initiative was a response during COVID to, to, especially as the 
fall was coming to get people out of parks, out of shelters, out of congregate living settings and into secure private uh, arrangements and, and to do it by hook or by crook to look at all assets and, and to move quickly. Also because the real estate market's in a bit of a free fall and there's an opportunity to, to, to acquire property as opposed to build property. The minister, to his credit, Minister Hussain, is a big proponent of modular housing. I come from a family of architects. I, I get a little nervous around modular housing. It feels a bit too temporary for a solution that requires some permanency. But but technology changes, and as technology changes, and the science building sciences improve, and so the modular housing piece is that it allows you to create new housing quickly. The, the units are being produced off-site. We're not at the pace yet where you can go to the you know, like IKEA and buy a house and and put it on your local parking lot. But the challenge is this: modular housing gives us the opportunity to take advantage of serviced lots like this one in in your community, like the one on 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 Ossington just up the street from where I live, like the one in Scarborough around the corner from a subway station. It allows you to take a underperforming and underutilized piece of property and parking lots are ideal. Every time I pass a parking lot, I, I, in my mind, assess it for modular capacity. And they're not trailer homes, although they have a very similar um, sort of uh, delivery system. As you build the house off-site, you truck it to the site and you lock it in. What's fascinating is you can now plug and play these uh, the, the Lego bricks that, uh, that you can literally plug them together and build a stack them up into a, into a lot of units on a small site, or you can spread them out and, and do moderate number of units on a moderate site, or you can do one unit on one site. You've got flexibility. There, there are lots of parking lots that are Part of larger development sites, you can build the modular housing, leave it there for five years until the private sector is willing to build the whole site out, and then literally put it on a truck, drive it away, and put it somewhere else. So it allows you to play with it. And if it is a problem, you can move it. Or you can switch out and get to families if the families start to grow. So modular housing has some inherent qualities which are flexible and portable and, and fast. And when you're trying to solve a crisis, those are things you really want. So we included in the wrapping housing portfolio uh, modular housing eligibility. The new city of Toronto housing manager comes from Vancouver, where she did several projects in Vancouver and knew the suppliers and knew the supply chain and knew, knew the timetables, but could also walk the planning department through the challenges Vancouver had. But modular housing is included in rapid housing because we wanted to get people out of harm's way uh, into a safe situation, not just for their sake, but primarily for their sake, but also for the community's sake. If you've got, I have, you know, Trinity Bellwoods Park is, is a couple of blocks from where I live. We have in Trinity Bellwoods Park right now about 30 tents full of about 60 people. Wintertime is no place to be in a tent. We've seen what happens with the fires. The, the wooden boxes they're building for folks are, are a step up from the tent, but they also are, are much more dangerous in some ways. And we've seen the deaths that have occurred in those, in those shelters as well. The reality is, is that housing is the only solution to a housing crisis, and you've got to build it quickly. And if we find a new way to build it fast, then we have to find a way to develop that part of the program. Rapid housing accommodates modular housing. And on that front, as a result, um, without displacing anybody, we've got 50, 60, 70, 80, 120 new units of housing in the, in the city. That lets us get to the next six or 7,000 people on the wait list. And what else is in that portfolio acquiring hotels? What else is hotels, part of the rapid hotels, housing mix? Hotels, motels, Class B office space. We've we've got housing that's in disrepair in in large parts of the uh, the country and including in Toronto because TCHC has done a really bad job of of, of maintenance and that dates back to the late 80s, not the early 90s as as someone in the House of Commons may tell you. So part of it's 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 bringing old housing back online. It's it's uh, picking up distressed assets that are empty and we're going to be development sites, but the projects have stalled and now we can buy them off the hand of a speculator and and hopefully at a lower cost turn them 
into housing. We've also seen conversion of, of, of office space or, or retail space into housing. And then we've also seen the, the approach that's been taken here around, around uh, modular housing. So there are a number of different streams in the project. All of them have value. All of them have challenges. You know? And so we've effectively put, we put a billion dollars on the table and we said, show us what you can do. And we're coming back with a, a rapid housing 2.0 if the budget lands where we think it's going to land, which will be bigger and stronger, but it'll also have some of the other downstream elements that you need to make this housing successful. Just putting a person in a house is a recipe for failure. For some, it works. High-functioning folks, it works without, without some of the challenges. But for others, if you don't provide the support, they end up back on the street very quickly, especially if you put them miles and miles and miles away from, from transit and community support and schools and parks and, and recreation and health clinics and all the other things. So the environment in which you put, put the housing and, and circle the housing is important. We've had some projects come to us and they're effectively old warehouses in the middle of the suburbs that don't have any transit routes to them. Yeah, I can warehouse 100 homeless people there, but I can guarantee you 100 homeless people will be back on the street and the last point of address will be that warehouse in the middle of nowhere. Even some of the motels out by the highways and far, far away from the downtown core, people don't like being divorced from their communities and, and their networks of support. And so if you move somebody from downtown Toronto to the outskirts of Scarborough, they're going to find their way downtown because they need to manage their addiction. And you can't do that in a, in a mall parking lot. They have friends and family that are part of their support system to pull them away from uh, some of the challenges they face in their life. But they also get lonely because they don't know anybody. You know any, you know, even the neighbor that they have, it takes a while to get to know your neighbors, especially in multi-residential buildings, and especially if you've been on the street, disconnected from that social experience. So those people who are going to stay off the street require levels of support. And the good news is those levels dissipate over time as people gain independence and their identity back and their confidence back and, and their economic capacity back. But in this situation, the rapid housing we did was just housing and housing alone. We did it for a couple of reasons. One, it cuts costs immediately. We were paying up to $6,000 a month, $6,000 a month for people to live in hotels in the financial district. That's insane. You know, I, I can buy a condo for downtown and carry it for $3,000 a month. Why don't we just buy them a condo and let them go? Right? And if they right. want to sell it, let them sell it and cash them out and never see them again. But the reality is this, is that the, is that the people that we're housing don't navigate those housing systems well. And without support, they don't get better. And without getting better, they can't get to self-sufficiency. So spending 6000 let alone $3,000 a month on a facility, when you can buy it with federal expenditures... What you end up doing is cutting the cost for the shelter system, and this shelter system can reinvest those dollars not into renting places, but in providing the health supports to make people successful, and in, and over time, all of the costs reduce. So the most cost-effective way to manage homelessness is with supportive housing. It's cheaper, more humane, but most importantly, homeless individuals like it, and they stay, and they get better, and then they aren't a risk to your community because they're healthy again, and they're not a risk to themselves because they're healthy again. When it comes to homelessness specifically, we have the Reaching Home Strategy funded through the National Housing Strategy. We then topped it up in the course of the pandemic with significant sums. We now have the One Billion Rapid Housing Initiative. We now have, though, a commitment to end chronic homelessness. Right. How much more needs to be spent to take everything that has been done and to truly end chronic homelessness? There are four parts to ending chronic homelessness in terms of investment. There's the capital outlay for the units. 
there are the rent supports to make it affordable because on social assistance, if you're going to calculate it off a 30% expenditure and you're only getting $680 on, as a single person on, on social assistance, you can model where the rent is. And it's very hard to build housing that's instantly affordable because you're buying land in the market, materials in the market, labor in the market, and you're producing housing in under market conditions. And there's no way of escaping that. So you can't build affordable housing. You can build housing that's more affordable, but it requires a subsidy to become inhabitable by somebody who's on social assistance or low income. And so we, you either need a rent subsidy or an income subsidy to secure their place in that house and to make it pay for itself. Plus that you rarely pay, although Rapid Housing did, you rarely pay 100% of the money for a home. Like every homeowner, you you put a down payment or a developer, you, you put an investment in, then you leverage it off financing and, and the housing strategy has a below market financing component to it. So you've got a capital outlay, you've got a subsidy of sorts, which is a combination of uh, income supports, rent supports, and discounted borrowing fees. So you can extend the program and leverage the, the capital investment to do more work faster. And then the final piece of it is, is effectively the supports. And that's where you've got to provide the wraparound services that deal with the individuals who are, who are homeless. And you can't, you've got to deal with it on a person by person basis. We, we talked a lot in this conversation so far about, about the health supports that are required to help people take care of themselves, but also to take care of the community. We know that a study that came out of St. Mike's Hospital, that there are four major medical indicators that, that, that accompany homelessness, especially around chronic homelessness. You are not going to solve chronic homelessness if you don't also deal with the addiction issues. If you don't also deal with the mental health drivers, the brain injury and the developmental disabilities, and there are some other trauma related dynamics, which you can put into those four baskets in, in one way or another. If you don't provide the supports, the housing isn't effective. My fear is that as we come out of the pandemic and the economy kicks in again, you're going to see real estate prices change. And some of the projects we couldn't fund, the price point of them are going to change. And it's going to become more expensive in six months than it is right now to solve. It's why we've been pushing so hard to get immediate money to try and capitalize, if I can use the word, capitalize on the opportunity that the pandemic has presented to us. And, and in doing so, we'll also stabilize the real estate market because if you own 12 buildings and two of them are at risk of going bankrupt, we'll take those two off your hand and you only got a portfolio of 10, but they're all healthy. So there's a good reason to spend into the sector because we stabilize the real estate market and that's great for homeowners in the community. But at the other side of that, if we don't spend quickly, we could end up having to spend more downstream. But on that front, if we take a look at a, at, at a billion dollars creating 3,000 units of housing, we'll do the math, 38,000, we need a about about $10 billion to get 30,000 units of housing. But I think when you see the, the per unit cost as we model out rapid housing, because there's a lot of rural homelessness and a lot of small city homelessness, it's not quite as expensive as solving it in Toronto. So the, the, the first wave of numbers that unit cost was higher, the second right. wave it's lower, and that's why we've landed in a good space. On So, so, so that's roughly the model in capital. Operating, it's choose your poison. Uh, there are different ways to subsidize people, and there probably should be options based on people's capacity to manage money, on landlords' comfort and taking a rent check or a government check, uh, as well as using our capacity to borrow to leverage the billion dollars to create twice as much housing as opposed to simply paying 100% capital. Because people pay a user fee to live in housing, i.e. rent, you can model that into a loan and therefore extend a base capital funding to create more units quickly because you can use the financial system to, to articulate a, a bigger program. 
But I would say that on total, what the health piece is a bit of a mystery. Uh, it's not the area I do a lot of policy work in, and it's not where my ask is coming from. We know roughly what we have to do, but it's the health department and the, and the health transfers that are going to accomplish a lot of that, which is a risk because we know the Ford government and the conservatives don't risk like harm. Risk in Ontario. Well, they don't like harm right. reduction. And if you don't do if you don't low barrier harm reduction policies, you're not going to get people with addictions in the housing. Uh, they will stay on the street to feed their addiction, and that's that's where the risk comes from. It's it's not in housing people that creates the risk. It's not housing the people that creates the risk. And if your neighbors are really concerned about break-ins and car windows being smashed or, or, or kids being scared by, by folks who are not managing their addiction, housing them takes that risk away because that all happens inside. It doesn't happen outside. But I would say that, that when you start modeling it that way, that's where the prediction needs to be. And, and while I have sort of a figure I've targeted and I haven't revealed it yet because I don't want to end up coming up with a budget that falls short and being saying, ah, you're not serious about it. There are a lot of other factors in there, including municipal programs, including city programs. When cities allow us to build on their land, it drops the price of housing. When provinces support the healthcare system, it allows us to remodel some of the other money. So we have to do it in partnership. But I think that if if you were to double rapid housing immediately, I could probably reduce homelessness this year by, I'm going to guess, almost 40, closer to 50% overnight. In fact, if you gave me $2 billion right now, I've got a list of projects I would fund immediately, and every one of those projects would house people by the end of the month. Well, on the, on the need for funding now, not only you make the point that the government may well face increased prices going forward, but the service providers that are able, willing, have capacity, untapped capacity, Wood Green, an East End provider who I have a great amount of respect yep. for, they didn't get any rapid housing money. And I'm they thinking, yep. let's, put, let's put them to work. You know, like, let's, let's, I was was, was talking to Michelle German at Woodgreen and said, listen, we have a list of approved and funded, approved without funding. And it's that approved without funding list that we can get to Woodgreen is one of the, was one of those projects that, that didn't score high enough, but is still a viable project and, and will be for a few more months. And therefore a budget, a budget push in this area will realize that project, but do the math differently. If there are 38,000 homeless people in the country and there are 338 ridings, if every riding did 120 houses, we'd be out of the homeless situation. So your riding just took in what, 60 units, 56 units, I think the size of the project. 64. You're halfway there already. So it's that simple to solve, but it's not that simple to solve if everybody's taking it to court and fighting for two years and it takes five years to realize a project. So the rapid piece of it is really important because it allows us to, to, to house those that are chronically homeless now, and then we can focus on prevention. And then we can focus on the healthcare dynamics that keep people in, in a tough to navigate space. The thing that drives me crazy as a housing advocate inside the political system is how profoundly easy this problem is to solve. And I've never been as close to solving it in my life of activism as I am right now in terms of the perspective I have. I'm not going to do it. We have housing providers across the country. We have to be smart. We have to make sure that women are housed differently than men. We have to make sure that Indigenous families get different services than than families who, who lie outside the treaty system. We have to do a whole bunch of things that are clever. And that doesn't mean just 120 units in every riding. It means the right 120 units in the lives of the right 120 people. And there is some proportionality around this that matters because you have to be close to services. But the truth of the matter is, is that it's that simple. If every single ride in fact, I went to John Tory when we were dealing with the with the population of homeless, and I said, you know, if you just made it a rule that every single counselor had to take four group homes in their riding before anybody took five, but nobody could take zero, you could solve homelessness pretty bloody quickly. And if you if you buy large hotels to house people and spend $120 million on a 300-unit facility, it's actually less efficient than buying 120 homes. 
for 120 homes with 10 people at home, you get more people in, in smaller units. And then you can also isolate people so that you're dealing with a group with similar conditions in one house. So a single nurse visit a week is all you need. When you start to pull the seniors out and start dealing with the seniors as long-term care, but they're not rich enough to get into one of the private facilities, then all of a sudden you start seeing supportive housing and long-term care as part of a housing continuum, which deals with housing precarity or housing housing need. And you stop generating that large group of population that's growing in our city of seniors who are homeless. But I, I don't think it's that expensive. I think we spent a lot more money on things that haven't delivered poverty reduction, haven't delivered good housing, and haven't delivered a solution than we we would get if we spent equivalent dollars on, on the housing system. Adam and I kept speaking at great length about housing well beyond the issue of chronic homelessness, but for the purpose of this episode and the topic at hand, I think it's best if we finish off there and move to my conversation with Ann Babcock, an experienced housing provider here in the East End of Toronto. Ann, thanks so much for joining me. Oh, thank you for having me, Nate. We hear housing advocates, I heard Adam Vaughn in a recent conversation I had with him talk about supportive housing as a necessary component of addressing chronic homelessness. You are the president of an organization that is involved in providing supportive housing in a serious way. What What is supportive housing? What are some examples that constituents might better and Canadians might better understand what supportive housing is? Yeah, I think it's a really good question. Because I think even in the sector that people get confused in what supportive housing is. Because we can look at supportive housing as housing that is dedicated to those individuals who are chronically homeless, who have maybe mental health and addictions issues, uh, who need additional supports to help them maintain their housing and maintain their health and their safety. Uh, then there's supportive housing for seniors. So it's seniors who need additional supports to maintain independence in the community. That's also called supportive housing. And we also have um, a couple of models of supportive housing that are slightly different than that. So we have housing for women and children coming from the shelter system where we put them in. We have 76 units. We actually look at it as an employment program, but in fact, it's supportive housing. With that housing, it gives them the stability to participate in the employment program, which is a program where we uh, move women from absolute homelessness, but into stable housing through to education where they go back to college, uh, take a two-year college program, come out. We have a partnership with industry where all the banks, consulting firms, some law firms, some tech firms who all participate can help place uh, individuals in a three-month period so they can get an opportunity to actually test out their new college degree. And then following that, they get opportunities to apply for positions. They're not given anything other than opportunities, so they're not handed over jobs. But as that process works through, we have close to 80 to 90% of our graduates actually go through that program and are employed and move on with actually family-sustaining incomes. That we call a supportive housing program. I think it gets very confusing for public because they probably only see the mental health and addictions in an individual who needs that additional support. Not sure why it frightens people in neighborhoods because they are everyday people. And certainly uh, we have another program for men who've lived on the streets who are seniors who with mental health and addictions. We call it First Step to Home. We have 28 units. And again, it's a whole program and we have intense supports to help them get their lives back, connect them back to their families. Actually, they start volunteering in their communities. 
They open bank accounts. They get in touch with, with their families. They also get primary care, which they haven't had. So just putting their lives back in order because something happened that went off stream for them and they ended up in the streets. Quite honestly, there are stories where we had a man who was from Rosedale, had his own business, uh, hurt himself, ended up in a serious situation where he ended up being addicted, uh, lost his business, lost his home, lost his family, ended up on the street. Could be your neighbor. And now he's considered one of those people (laughs) that people refer to. Yeah, so pause pause there, that that notion of those people, because I sat through a meeting recently, two meetings actually, in the last couple of weeks in relation to a project on Trenton Avenue here in East York. And it's a modular housing unit, part of the city's modular housing initiative. And we can get to the broader conversation about modular housing and more rapid housing. But as it relates to this site, a lot of the community feedback has been supportive, frankly, but a lot of the community feedback has also been quite critical. And some have legitimate questions about replacing parking or how do we address the fact that these are 64 units, bachelor units, but we want people to integrate in the community in a longer term way. So can we have more family units and have some mix in there? But a lot of the questions, frankly, have been worried about those people, that this site is across from a school, it is across from a park that I played baseball in growing up. And Aren't these people, those people, these people coming off the streets with problems, aren't they going to be a risk to our community? What do you say to community members who are raising those concerns? I mean, I think what happens is that they're stereotyping an individual that maybe they they see in the news or they walk by on the street who's looking for money. And so all of a sudden, that's the those people that they're considering. They don't think that they're the neighbors that they want. There's a fear because they don't know who they are. Quite honestly, um, and I, I talked about our first step to home, we had that same reaction when we decided we wanted to, we purchased an old hotel, renovated it. The neighborhood wanted a more like a Drake hotel moved in, uh, something more custom to the community. We did door-to-door outreach and spent an awful lot of time talking to the neighbors so we could tell them the kind of people we thought we were going to be housing, why they needed the housing, and what we were going to do to provide the support and how we wanted to be good neighbors and how developing neighborhood integration was very, very important for all of us. And so communities need to have that diversity to keep them healthy. And after we did that kind of outreach, we did an open house when we actually were ready to have our men move in. And we were overwhelmed with the support we got. So I think it's a matter of actually educating face-to-face, getting people to know you, what you plan to provide, how you're there. You're not just moving people in and then nobody's there to support that. It's really important uh, to say that you're moving into a neighborhood and you want to be good neighbors. And I'm not actively on the ground in quite the same way as a city councillor in hosting these meetings, but I want to emphasize in my conversations and I have emphasized in my public conversations and have emphasized in individual conversations to date and email correspondence. When we marry the two questions I've asked so far about the concerns that constituents have and and people have in the community with this notion of supportive housing, when you have an on-site 24-7 provider that is local, respected, has experience, Wood Green could be such a provider. The neighborhood group is another East End provider that is obviously on-site with the two existing modular sites. That has to give our community here in the East End a lot of confidence that 
you have a really experienced provider that is there to support individuals in a really hands-on way. You've talked about yes, mental health supports, but also employment service supports. You provide, neighborhood group provides, and it really is a hands-on effort to ensure that people succeed. Well, and I think that's it exactly. But I also think it's the fear of the unknown, right? So I think that's why you need to have that kind of open relationship with the community. So once you are up and running, that you have that open line. So if somebody has a complaint or concern, and that will make a huge difference in making everything successful. And I think alleviating some of those fears up front, if they said, yeah, here is the model that we're putting in place. Here's the staff instruction we're putting in place. And here's the open line that you have if you ever have an issue and, and you need it resolved. It's interesting hearing you speak because having sat through the two community meetings to date, we haven't really heard the perspective of service providers who are experienced in this way. We're hearing from the city's perspective, and, and that's important. And we're hearing about site selection, and that's important. And we're hearing about studies in relation to community safety, and that's important. But we're not hearing the real world experience with decades of experience in this space of housing providers like Wood Green or like the neighborhood group to say, we are on the ground, we have existing sites that operate very similar, and we we understand your concerns, they have not been realized. And here's here are examples of community liaison committees and otherwise that are able to address concerns on an ongoing basis. So I think that going forward, I hope that is a bigger part of the conversation is elevating your voice, elevating voices of other service providers who have that experience and understand how the challenges are raised at the outset, but ultimately how they haven't really come to fruition. Yeah, I think that's a great idea. And in fact, I don't think the city has thought about that as a model because it makes a big difference. When we look at how do we solve the homelessness crisis, Adam told me 38,000 Canadians across the country in Toronto, the number I see is about 8,000 overall. It is tragic, but on the other hand, it seems very much achievable, especially when I see programs like the Modular Housing Initiative, programs like the Rapid Housing Initiative. You were part of a city task force that focused on these issues. When you look at the city's Modular Housing Initiative and you look at some of the other measures that the federal government is bringing forward with Rapid Housing and more, how far is that going to take us? And what more do we need to do? What is missing? Or, or is it simply a matter of we have the right measures in place, we just need to double down on them now? It's interesting that you talk about that report, that there's another report that actually hasn't come out yet that we've, uh, I've been a part of uh, as well. I think we've 25 supportive housing providers have participated in this, and it's called the Supportive Housing Growth Plan. And it is exactly that, to address at least the Toronto supportive housing gap uh, that people see and kind of a, an approach to deal with all of the different types of needs that people have, because it's not a homogeneous group. So we need different solutions. In terms of what we need to do, the problem people run into, the problem groups run into, is aligning all of the different funding required to actually make it happen. There's a lot um, involved in making, you know, what we need happen, happen. We need more, I think, private developers to step up for supportive housing. Uh, they're now stepping up more so to do affordable housing, but that's a different time. Because when you're talking about affordable housing, you're talking about 80% of average market rent. You actually have to have an income. You can't be on assistance and actually qualify for that housing unless you have uh, rent supplement dollars or something like that from the city. And again, lining those up is not easy. So it, that's the problem is that nobody talks to each other. They have different programs, policies are set at different times. And it's really navigating all of those and then knitting them together 
that makes something work. So it's not an easy thing to solve, I know, but it is uh, one of the bigger problems. If you were in my shoes, then we have the Rapid Housing Initiative that seems very much focused on building or acquiring supply very quickly, such that we can move people out of shelters and into real homes. And then the next question is, how do we ensure there is stable funding for these wraparound support services to make sure that they are the success that we all want them to be? Is the idea, though, we should continue to expand the funding envelope for the Rapid Housing Initiative and push the province to then partner with us for ongoing supports? Is, Is that the ultimate answer to this kind of project? Yeah, I mean, because I think the Rapid Housing Initiative was a fantastic initiative and everybody was very excited about it and lots of people applied. I'm not sure how many actually got approved. The criteria was was such that it made it difficult. We had two projects and neither one of them was approved. And primarily because the criteria, one of the criteria was, do you have the support dollars? And that, you know, in terms of- Right, it's a chicken and egg situation. Yeah, there was 25 points allotted to that. So if you didn't have it, you already went, went down to 75 points. Um, and I don't think they approved anything that was below 90. So in our mind, I mean, just in terms of the modeling and we did the performance, we didn't need support dollars. We thought the operating dollars we were going to have through the rents were going to make it work for us. But as well, one of the projects, um, I've been working with the Ontario Health to get money for it because it was a nine-bed, nine-unit build to take patients from Michael Guerin, who are in the alternative level of care beds, and move them into more a housing model to support them in the community. And then we were working with OAH to get those support dollars. We didn't have them when we submitted, so we haven't uh, been approved. However, I'm in the process of still looking at getting that. So I'm hoping maybe if there's a round two, that one will be uh, supported. But that that's what we ran into. And so I think if we continue, if the federal government continues with it, they might want to broaden that criteria a little bit, or at least uh, have an opportunity to speak to it before you just get judged on the criteria in and of itself. Right, because not having that support funding in place at the outset doesn't mean that you aren't able to either acquire that funding or, as you say, manage the ongoing support through the rental income that is ultimately going to flow through the project. I certainly expect dollars through the budget for addressing chronic homelessness. We went from a commitment to have chronic homelessness by 2030 and the throne speech really amped that up to end chronic homelessness. So that promise is going to be a paper promise until such time as we put really serious monetary commitment through a budget. So I have not every expectation that it will be an unending amount of money, but I certainly think we're going to have to renew the rapid housing initiative or renew that funding commitment in some other way to ending chronic homelessness. So I I hope that your two projects, it seems to me there are providers all across the country. You are a good example of it in the East End that I'm more familiar with that have capacity. We want to address this issue. You have capacity to address this issue. And the only thing really missing is funding. And Oftentimes, we are in situations in government where we want to address something, we're going to put money on the table, but there isn't enough capacity across the country to seize those dollars and deliver on the goal that we want. In this case, quite differently, we have capacity that is underutilized. (laughs) And it seems to me we should put those dollars on the table to at least make sure that projects like yours and projects like yours across the country are able to get off the ground. Yeah, no, I think that exactly. There's also, I think, new ways of looking at it. I mean, not just chronic homelessness, but homelessness and affordability. We just launched a project with Daniel Sun Life in Regent Park. 
and you know it's fairly unique and, and innovative in terms of what it is. We think that that can be replicated easily across the country. Project that was already in development, so had no initial thought of, a, of including affordable housing. However, working with Daniels, we could we get 10% of those units and dedicate them as affordable. And what would that model look like? Uh, we went to the city and said, we have this model. We think we can bring 34 units that weren't going to come onto the market, into the market. And not only that, we can get them into the market in under two years. Takes more than four years normally. So this was rapid housing. And uh, the city liked the idea. They had an RFP process that it fit into. So we, have, we responded to that. And now in the spring, we've got 34 single moms moving into really nice two and three bedroom units at an affordable rate. So they'll be paying something like $1,200 for a two bedroom unit in, you know, basically in the downtown core not having to move to the suburbs and what it would normally the market price would be like $2,200. So it's, it's affordable. They have incomes of about, you know, between 50 and 60,000 and they have a couple of kids. So this way they're work, they're not working poor. They'll actually be able to do something may have some savings and continue to work and live well and take care of their families. That model, there are rental buildings in planning stages right now in Toronto, tons of them where this could happen tomorrow. When we look at chronic homelessness being one piece of the puzzle, but the, a, a really serious piece of the puzzle is just ensuring that housing is affordable in our city. It's an impossible ask of people to pay the rents in the city for most middle-class jobs, working-class jobs even, even harder. And when we look at the model that you've just discussed, from the federal perspective, it seems the answer is dollars on the table and maybe attaching some conditions to those dollars to really push the city. What other policies should other levels of government be thinking through to ensure that we can have more of the projects that you're speaking of? This is where inclusionary zoning would, in fact, help address all of this. And I know this this is going to happen in the city within the next year. So 10% of any builder will require the builder to include affordable housing. And people who are in the development groups are now looking at this. And so they're looking for help in terms of navigating that journey. Uh, Woodbury's been working actually since the summer to meet with a lot of developers to help them understand what it means and how to work together. But actually to come to the table as an honest partner and not just somebody who says, I need to include this, so how do I do it? But I need to, I really want to have affordable housing as part of my development, so how do we work together? So that's the kind of narrative we're trying to change and an approach we're trying to change. We've developed a term sheet that we're working with developers and that seems to work really well with them. It's something they understand and relate to. And we're working with the city and uh, we've shared our term sheet with them as well. So it is a model, I think, that will address quite a bit of the need at the affordable level. And once you get in, you can also bring in rent supplement dollars and you can make those even more deeply affordable. And so you can get down to a a rate for people who are working in very precarious employment and who, who may need that very deep affordability. And so across the city, we could see quite a bit of housing come on stream through a simple policy like inclusion. Well, it does seem to me we are living in a moment now where the housing market is getting away from us in, in, in a serious way. It becomes a real challenge. But at the same time, different levels of government are prioritizing addressing housing more today than certainly in the last five years I have seen. And so I'm 
in some ways more worried because of the overall concern, but in some ways more optimistic because there's at least now momentum across levels of government to work together and to partner with organizations like yours. So I hope that there are more projects that we see in our East End and across the city and across the country. And I really appreciate when you have that report from the, on the supportive housing piece, do send it over. And if there are any other ways that you think I can be a voice in support of adding more housing and adding more affordable housing and ending homelessness, do do reach out. Great. Thanks, Nate. And thanks for the opportunity today. This is great. Thanks for joining me on this episode of Uncommons. If you happen to be a constituent who is concerned about the local project or who wants to provide positive feedback about the local project, community liaison at Lura, L-U-R-A dot C-A is the best way of providing that feedback. You can, of course, provide it to me and I'll direct it on, or you can provide it to our, our local counselor as well. That would be the other way of going about it. Of course, I appreciate everyone, constituent or otherwise, joining me for this podcast. Do remember to subscribe at uncommons.ca for future episodes. Please do leave a positive review if you like what we're doing. And otherwise, until next time.